there was a time when I went to Utah to work uh, for Utah Partnership Fellowships for Christ. And uh, I was with a friend, and uh, we were uh, heading back, and we were driving from Utah back to California. And I really am from California, Orange County, not really into the whole snow thing. Don't understand it. Don't know how to drive in it. I mean, I can barely drive in rain, okay? And uh, if you ask my wife, she drives mostly because she just has a little bit more control on driving. She likes it a little bit better. She does it more than I do. And uh, I'm driving back, and uh, I'm uh, literally fighting with the, the gal that I went with, who's also the co-leader with me. And I'm saying, no, you drive. No, you drive. It's your car. Well, it was my car, so I had to do the driving. And I'm telling you, this was the worst blizzard I'd ever been in. Um, I probably drove 5 to 10 miles per hour, if even that. And it was... Um, it would have been more uh, purposeful if someone was on the outside of my window with a scraper scraping the snow off as we were driving. Because basically I was falling behind this huge truck and the, the snow was just just hitting like needles on my car. And uh, I was fearful. Um, I was afraid my car was going to slip out or hydroplane. And uh, there was a bit of chaos going on in the car. There was no peaceful feeling as I was driving um, but um, to make a long story short, we were able to uh, find ourselves at a McDonald's and we retreated there for, I don't know, two, three hours until it slowed down. Um, I had a frosty and I felt a lot better. But you can tell there's times in our lives where um, there's a, a rainstorm or a blizzard or maybe even some of you that are big ocean people. You go out and the minute you go out, you're taking a risk. And... Um, I took a risk when I was driving back, and I, I wasn't sure what the outcome was going to be, but I knew that I remembered when I was a kid, if God is for me, then who can be against me? And I knew God was going to be with me. Even though my human nature still kind of felt like, oh, I'm a little fearful. I'm a little fearful of this. I'm not comfortable in this situation. I don't know how to drive in snow. I don't have chains. No chains on my Honda Accord, 1999. There's no SUV, right? This isn't a, a full-wheel drive. So, um, in any event, I just wanted to, I wanted to start you out with a storm. I wanted you to paint a picture in your mind of just how chaotic a storm can really be. Um, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that your word would speak truth, Lord, in the lives of those here in the congregation today, Lord. Lord, that you would, you would uh, work through me, that I'd be your instrument, Lord, that I would share the passion that's in my heart, Lord. Lord, that you would just uh, be with me now, Lord. Calm any fears or any uh, nerves I might have, Lord, in the storms that I go in in my lives, Lord, uh, in my life, Father. And just again, um, speak through me now as we read through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, my message, as I said, is a storm within a storm, and it comes from Mark 4, 35 through 41. That was a picture of the Master and Commander movie. It was really that bad, if you can imagine um, a storm. But I want to read through the, the, the passage with you. So if you have your bulletins, you can look on your bulletin or you can read in your Bible. I'm going to be reading now the New King James Version. Mark 4, 35-41. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, 
And the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Verses 35 through 36. I want to point out a few things. Cross over. Now they were probably crossing over, obviously, by a boat. Um, across the sea. The sea was about eight miles wide to retreat from the multitude of people. Jesus and his disciples were probably on the north side of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum, where he had done most of his uh, miracles and his ministry. Um, little fact on the side, um, the Sea of Galilee is also known as the cradle of Christianity. If you read through the Gospel accounts, um, you'll learn that Jesus did most of his, um, his healing, his teaching, and his life there, around the sea, especially near Capernaum and Bethsaida and some of those places uh, near the sea. And he was calling them to sail about probably 13 miles across to the largest region of Gadara. Now, Gadara was a remote place. It, was un- it had no one there. It was uninhabited. And um, there would be no interruption by the crowds. But to cross over, I want to I point something out in the, in the Nelson Study Bible. It says, to cross over the Sea of Galilee was no simple task. Even though the lake is only eight miles wide, its unique geography produces a greatly varying climate. The lake is situated 700 feet below sea level and is surrounded by mountains that rise three to 4,000 feet above sea level on the west, north, and east. Tropical conditions prevail around the lake's surface, where even bananas are grown today. Yet the higher elevations can produce chilling night air. We're going to talk more about the Sea of Galilee and the weather, but I want, to, I want to leave and move on to left the multitude for a second. It is very accurate to say that Jesus needed some alone time with his disciples. The disciples were most likely overwhelmed by the crowds of people. One commentary even said they might have been a little jealous by the over amount of time that Jesus had been spending with the multitudes of people. Nonetheless, the disciples probably felt like a great weight had now been lifted off of their shoulder. And they were excited, they were anticipating some retreat time, some vacation time, some R&R with their beloved Master. If you can remember Jesus in the past three or four chapters, which Neil and others have preached out of, I want to just recap some of the things that Jesus has already done. And maybe this will prove that he is a bit exhausted. Jesus has already cast out an unclean spirit, healed Peter's mother-in-law, Cleansed the leper, healed a paralyzed man, and healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Now these are just five that were mentioned. And as you can see, he does quite a bit more. He's a busy man. He is a busy, busy man. Hey, not to mention, he's already called all twelve of his disciples up onto the mountain, talked with them, walked with them, He's also just finished in chapter 3 of Mark, teaching parables of the sower, the growing in mustard seeds, and even the light under the basket. So you can see 
that he needed some R&R himself, as well as his disciples. He was just to the point of exhaustion and needed to get away. Now let's focus a little bit more on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, I've put up some slides, thanks to Google Images. That is awesome, by the way, Google Images. I'm not a big PowerPoint person, but I found some cool slides. The Sea of Galilee, it's not unusual even today for a sudden great windstorm to appear on the Sea of Galilee during the evening hours. The warm tropical air from the lake's surface rises and meets the colder air from the nearby hills. The resulting turbulence stirs up great waves which make boating extremely treacherous. This is a fact out of um, Wikipedia, actually. Um, So up to current date on what the Sea of Galilee is like. It makes boating extremely treacherous. Now remember, they're crossing over to the Sea of Galilee, probably 8 miles wide, but 13 miles in distance. Um, The facts about the lake. It's about 12.5 miles from north to south and and 7.5 miles east to west at its widest. So it's not very big. The Jordan River effectively flows through the Sea of Galilee, entering in the north and exiting in the south. In that slide, you'll see the Jordan River coming through. And we know that the Jordan River is where Jesus was baptized. Some other fun things about the Sea of Galilee is its name. It's mentioned three, um, by three other names in the Bible. The first is the Sea of Kinnereth. This is the Hebrew origin from its harp-shaped, harp-like shape. Um, the Sea of Tiberias, where John refers to it twice in the New Testament. Tiberias is a little um, city right near um, the Sea of Galilee, very close by. And finally, the Lake of Gennesareth, which is the Hellenized form used by Josephus. Let's read in verse 37 a little bit about the great windstorm. We've talked a little bit about the Sea of Galilee itself and the historical and the cultural context. But now let's get into the story and how it sets. In verse 37 it says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. I did some uh, research on this, and I looked up the account in Matthew 8.24 in the New King James Version. It said, A great tempest arose. Now I don't know about you, but I don't want to be anywhere on a sea when a great tempest is arising. That is chaos on its way. A furious squall is what, the new, is what the NIV version says. So you can see that the weather was nasty. It was turbulence, and it was endangering the lives of the disciples on the boat. You see, when we think of a storm, we tend to minimize its danger and severity because of where we live. We live in Orange County. We have minimal experiences with storms here. A storm to my, to my kids in, in, in third grade would be not going out for recess because the rain is too uh, overpouring outside. Or maybe the storm might be, um, you know, um, we're starting to get a little bit of hail. We don't really understand what a real storm is like. We don't live in a place where it really comes on all that, that often. But we can remember things like Katrina and some of the natural disasters that have happened across seas. You see... Creation Research Society, Donald B. D. Young says it like this. 
Such storms result from differences in temperatures between the sea coast and the mountains beyond. The Sea of Galilee lies 680 feet below sea level. It is bounded by hills, especially on the east side where they reach 2,000 feet high. These heights are a source of cool, dry air. In contrast, directly around the sea, the climate is semi-tropical with warm, moist air. The large differences in height between surrounding land and the sea causes large temperature and pressure changes. This results in strong winds dropping to the sea, funneling through the hill. What is my point, folks? My point is, cool and hot are mixing together and causing great amounts of turbulence and great amounts of storms. I was reading in the Jerusalem Perspective. It's a, it's a newspaper. And uh, 15 years ago, a storm in the March of 1992 sent waves 10 feet high crashing into downtown Tiberias, causing significant damage to the city 15 years ago. These storms are still going on today. The weather is still nasty, sometimes out on that Sea of Galilee. For all you artist buffs, um, I pulled up a picture of a famous artist by the name of Rembrandt. The title is The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and it's a little dark. But this is his interpretation of just how awful it was. Now, see, we've been looking at what the Sea of Galilee can be like, according to historians or even meteorologists or even an artist. But let's go back and take a look at verse 37 of a storm that really did happen that we have account for in the book of Mark. Verse 37 says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat onto the boat so that it was already filling. Let me talk to you a little bit about waves beating and already filling. See, in Luke 8.23, another account of this same story, it reads this way. They were filling with water and in jeopardy. The disciples were in jeopardy for their lives. Matthew 8.24 says, The boat was covered with the waves. This wasn't a little storm. I'm trying to make a point here. This wasn't, oh, some waves are kind of coming in, let's get a cup and kind of shoo it out. No, this was a huge, huge catastrophe happening. A lot of chaos going on. The disciples were most definitely staring death in the face. Clearly, we can sympathize and relate to their fear of drowning or death. Can't we? We were on that boat. Wouldn't we be fearing for our lives? By the three accounts of the gospel, the boat is not being rocked. It's not being filled up just a little bit. It's halfway full, covered, and threatening, putting those in jeopardy aboard. James Rabchuk, a pastor, says it like this. The weather snapped, and the winds changed from strong and gusting to furious. The waves picked up and started slamming the boats with intensity. Now get this point here. The disciples went from controlled response to chaotic and desperate in an instant. They felt that they were losing control. Have we felt like that before? Have we felt like in a storm in our life, in a hardship in our life, in a trial, that we're losing control? That God isn't going to be with us? That we're not going to get out of this? 
I'm sure that we have. I'm sure that we have. You see, folks, Rabchuk is right on in what he says. The disciples are losing control. But, but this is what I want to talk to you about today. There's yet another significant storm taking place aboard the boat. So let's explore this a bit deeper. While Jesus is sleeping and the boat continues to fill, the disciples are scared. They're vulnerable. And their trust in this teacher, this beloved master, is slowly, slowly diminishing. Leaving them and even making them question if he even really cares about them. If he even really cares about them. It's likened to a storm. We just talked about it, the, the, the meteorologist uh, version of a storm. The hot mixing with the cold. Well, it's a combustion of hot and cold as well with the disciples. It's a conflict or a combustion between faith and trust in God and doubt and fear. You see, there's a second storm taking place. There's a physical storm, but there's an inner storm, a spiritual storm as well. Continue with me and let's focus on their dialogue in verse 38b, which shows their ongoing chaotic state of being. I'm going to skip 38a for one moment to focus on the chaos that the disciples are continually being in through their vulnerability, through their frustration. You've got to think as you picture the story that the disciples are pointing fingers at each other. They're blaming people in their time of crisis. There is absolutely no tranquility, peace, or calm. They are frantic because of the furious, chaotic storm that has arrived. Verse 38b. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I would bet that to the disciples, Jesus' sleep, his tranquility, was irritating to the disciples. Because they couldn't. They couldn't sleep. They couldn't rest. They couldn't be at ease. They were floundering at, in the middle of the lake. And Jesus had no right to be sleeping. In their minds. In their minds, Jesus had no right to be sleeping. They accused Jesus of not caring what happened to them. They accused Jesus of letting them suffer and possibly even die. In the heat of the moment, they gave in to their frustration. And they vented their feelings to Jesus. Are you understanding where I'm going with this? The inner storm... Happens within all of us, too. You see, the fact of the matter is given these awful conditions, the conditions of a storm or a hardship in our lives, we can relate to the disciples. We can empathize and sympathize with the disciples. And we'd respond in a similar manner. We'd do the same thing, wouldn't we? Rabchuk goes on in his quote, and he talks about, he talks about um, a crisis moment. And I've defined it as the inner and spiritual storm within all of us. In the crisis moment, it is very easy to lose our self-control. 
There's no time to reflect. The thoughts of anger and blame toward others, which we usually cover up, come gushing out. The disciples were in danger, but they did not come to Jesus and just simply ask him what to do or tell them what the meaning in this situation might have been. They came and accused Jesus of not caring about them. And at the moment of crisis, it is always someone else's fault. Oftentimes, we even blame God. That hit me hard as I was reading it. I was doing some self-evaluation. I was saying, Doug, do I do that? Do I blame others? Make myself look better? Or so that it, I'm not losing control? Do I live in fear in times of my lives? Or do I put my faith 100% in God, even in the times of crisis and hardship in physical external storms in my life? So where is Jesus in the disciples' awful, stormy, nasty, furious circumstances? Where is he? He's asleep. He's asleep. Verse 38a. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. Jesus is exhausted from all his work, so he's resting on a cushion at the stern of the ship. He was sleeping. Water was sloshing. Boat was filling. But Jesus wasn't even phased. He slept through all of it. I have a hard time when I was thinking about uh, relating to this, I have a hard time um, sometimes when I go to, to people's houses who have children. Um, I'm a school teacher and I'm around kids and youth, but there's just something about a tolerance that I have versus parents or families that have children. And I don't know if I have like this keen like sense, but I hear and, and catch everything that goes on with kids. One kid could be over banging on something, another kid could be screaming and this and that. And the parents, it's not even phasing them. That have children. It doesn't phase them. Amidst all this chaos, they can still somewhat find peace because they're used to it. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get that. Um, yeah, maybe when I have children, I'll start understanding that. When I was preparing my message, I was among some children, actually. And I had to actually lock the office door, put on my iPod, and keep my eyes straight at the computer. Because I just get distracted by things. We get distracted by things in our lives, especially hardships. If I'm in a storm, I'm not sleeping. But Jesus was. And you know what? Two things are made really clear to us. I'm excited to share them both with you. Number one, Jesus was exhausted from all his work. And it shows he's fully human. He's fully human, just like us. He needs rest. He needs something to eat. He is fully human. But you know what the exciting part is? There's a second part. Jesus sleeping through a violent storm is truly remarkable. We could never do it. It represents a man at peace. A man at peace. Jesus walked in the light. He was not shaken by the criticism and misunderstanding as we keep reading through the gospel all the way up to the, the account of his death, his resurrection. He was never phased by the criticism, the misunderstanding, the way that people pointed the finger at him because he lived 
under the will of God, under His Father. He served Him with His heart, His soul, and His mind. He truly knew that His life was under God's sovereign will. You know, there's commentaries that say Jesus slept. Jesus sleeping was more on purpose. He wasn't actually tired. I don't believe that it matters, but I want to share with you two angles. How Jesus manages to stay asleep through this violent storm is unknown. But a traditional commentary say that he slept deliberately in order to test the faith of his apostles. If that is the case, if he did do that, they failed. They failed. So let me ask you, would we have failed? A more plausible explanation, and the one that I'm going to take, that I agree with, is that the author of Mark depicts Jesus sleeping out of exhaustion from all his work, indicating that he is human and he is tired. You see, here is Jesus' reaction to the diminishing faith and ever-present fear of his disciples. I want you to notice the first word out of his mouth as I read this. In verse 39 and 40, it says, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? You see, folks, the first word out of Jesus' mouth when he awoke was what? Peace. Peace. It shows a total contrast of chaos, of, of, of hardship and, and uh, fear and la- loss of control over on this side where the disciples are. I showed you that world. We live in that world sometimes in our lives. And sometimes we create that world subconsciously ourselves through our own doubt and our own fear and our own lack of control and trust in God. Peace, be still. Peace, be still. Jesus understood the situation. First of all, he paid attention to the storm. He rebuked the wind and commanded the waves. And in an instant, the situation changed. The winds died down, the waves turned into a gentle swell, and they became nothing. I think there's an important thing to be noted here. Jesus' command over the wind and the sea with one word of peace demonstrates his full and complete deity. He is both fully man and fully God. He had shown them that he had power over nature and was and is today the creator God. Verse 40, I want to read it again to you. It says, But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? You see, as I read this dialogue, and I I talked to Neil and my wife and even some of my other friends, I was puzzled with it. I said, Why would Jesus say that to to them? They were in the midst of fear and chaos. Of course they're going to go wake him up. Of course they're going to be fearful of their life. Wouldn't we? Wouldn't we wake him up? I don't know if that's what he's trying to get at. See, as I read this dialogue, and I asked myself that, I realized two things. Number one, he rebuked his disciples for their fear. 
he rebuked his disciples for their fear. And number two, he challenged them to have faith in God. But why? As I've said, we would have done and said the same things that the disciples did. Keep in mind, we have not physically walked or talked with Jesus like the disciples have. Remember, they were his right-hand men, his students. They had spent several days with him learning from his teachings and eyewitnessing his miraculous healings. You see, he's not interacting with ordinary men on the boat. He's t- I was thinking about that as being a, a school teacher or even a youth director. You can't help but notice some children or some youth kids that just have leadership qualities within them. And you see them right away. God reveals them to you as you spend more time with them. And you hold them to a higher standard. You push them farther. That's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. Even though it was early in the ministry, he wanted them to understand that he was the real deal. That he was both fully man and fully God. And that they were to put 100% faith in him. And let the fear trickle away. But we have faith in God. Right, congregation? We have faith in God. And still constantly doubt that He is going to protect us at times. Forgive us. Save us. Love us. Financially provide for us. In our hard circumstances. Our hardships. Our storms of life. When a physical storm arrives, we can't help but have a spiritual storm as well. A battle between fear and faith. A battle between fear and faith. I had a professor at APU. I'm glad I got to share something about Azusa Pacific after I got that little jar from Neil earlier from Biola. And he said this, and I think it's fitting. Fear is the opposite of faith. Fear is the expression of self-centeredness, while faith is the expression of of God-centeredness. Dr. Bruce Boyne of Azusa Pacific, he was my favorite Bible teacher. My favorite Bible teacher. You had to go early to sign up for his classes. He was that exciting and he made the Bible that alive. Fear is the expression of self-centeredness while faith is the expression of God-centeredness. I ask you, are we living with more faith or more fear in our lives today? Verse 41, the last verse. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's important to note that feared exceedingly is exactly the same text in Luke 2.9 when it says feared a great fear. When the shepherds saw the angel, the angel that was going to announce the birth of Christ, they feared the same great fear. The disciples looked around with gaping mouths and fear. They were in awe. They were in puzzlement. You would have thought that this would have been the icing on the cake when they saw Jesus awake immediately and calm the storm. You would have thought that that would have been the end all. And they would have been like, okay, 100%, I'm on your side. I will never doubt you again. As if healing the paralytic guy and bringing him through the roof and curing the leper and casting out the demons wasn't enough. Now he is commanded... Power over the nature in an instant with the word of peace. 
You would have thought that would have been icing on the cake, but it wasn't. Instead, they foolishly, by their human nature, responded, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey Him? I think it's ironic that the fear the disciples had when they were on the boat, when the, when the storm was coming, has now been escalated and amplified severely. The fear they had when they were on the boat, when Jesus was asleep, was minor compared to how they felt now after they had saw what He could do. They feared a great fear. They feared exceedingly. Like I said, are these not the same disciples that have seen Jesus cast out demons, heal the paralytic, and cure the leper? He's been, Jesus has been explaining in great detail all the secret meanings of His parables. You would have thought the disciples would know who He was, what His aim was, His purpose, and what He was all about. But for whatever reason, fear resided in them. Apparently, apparently they weren't. They were allowing fear and doubt to reside instead of firmly planting their faith in their Master, the beloved Jesus. You know, unfortunately, this is how the story ends. This is verse 41. They leave in fear. But, this isn't how the story has to end with us. And I can tell you as I read through the rest of the book of Mark, it's not how the story ends with the disciples as we continue to read. In fact, one example was when Peter walked on water in Mark 8. If you remember, the disciples at first, they thought they saw a ghost. And then Jesus said, come to me, Peter. And Peter took a risk. He stepped out, probably, probably not before he had a little inner storm within him saying, fear, faith, fear, faith, right? But he trusted and put his hope and his faith in Christ. We must fear God alone and live God-centered lives in obedience to his commands. I believe the disciples did learn that. And it was just a stepping stone. This story is just a stepping stone for the disciples to build a stronger faith in Christ Jesus, living free of fear and doubt. I want to wrap this up. I want to encourage you on how we can overcome our fear. It, it didn't mean to be this way, but I think as a youth director and, and um, planning my message, you can't help when you're doing little acronyms. It ended up spelling the word SAIL. Who would have known, right? So I'm hoping that that will be a catchy, remembering thing for you as I finish up my message. The first thing I think is important, the S is sympathize. Sympathize with the disciples. We don't always agree with what they've done, how they've reacted, but we're definitely on the same page that we also fear for our lives, especially in times of crisis, in times of storm. I think it's important to remember that boat was halfway full and they were in jeopardy of their lives. We would have been too. Sympathize with the disciples. Number two, the A is acknowledge. Acknowledge Jesus for who He is and who He was. He's fully human, which shows by sleeping on the pillow at the stern of the boat, but He's fully God, rebuking the wind and calming the storm. I think it's important, too, to, to again repeat that he demonstrated his power over nature. Number three, the I. The I stands for identify. 
identify with the disciples. Don't just sympathize or empathize with them, but then identify, relate to them. They were experiencing a storm within a storm. Even though they were undertaking a physical storm on the boat, on the Sea of Galilee, they had created within themselves an inner storm, a hot and cold combusting together of fear versus faith. Folks, we face two of them ourselves daily. Physical and external storms and spiritual and inner storms. I think the only way you can overcome those times of fear in our lives is finally by four, the L, live. Live as disciples of Christ, free from fear. Learn to depend on the Creator. This is the secret of overcoming fear and learning to put our faith in God. As Christians who walk in God's light, His light of truth, we know what's right. But we still need to humble ourselves and do His will. And then when it's accomplished, the verse says He will lift us up. Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift us up. Again, sympathize, acknowledge, identify, and live. Then we won't drown. We won't, be, we won't be afraid of fearing if we can continue to sail on. In closing, I wanted to leave you with uh, the lyrics to a song. The song is by a, a popular Christian group called Casting Crowns. And they have a song called Praise You in the Storm. And I've probably listened to it a hundred times in the last three or four weeks in preparation, in meditation, and just in my own quiet time. And I think these lyrics are perfectly fitting for a closing. I was sure by now, God, that you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day. But once again I say amen, and it's still raining. And as the thunder rolls, I barely hear you whisper through the rain, I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. I'll praise you in this storm, and I will lift my hands. For you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried... You hold in your hand, you never left my side, and though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. Let that be of encouragement to you in times of your lives where you think you can't get through the storm, where you think that God is not going to be with you. He says in the last verse of Matthew, after giving a great commission to his men who are going to carry on his ministry, he says, And lo, I am with you always until the very end of the age. God is faithful to us even when we remain faithless to Him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to You right now, Lord, and we humble ourselves knowing full and quite well, Lord, that You are both in control of the situation, all-powerful God, all-knowing God, Omnipresent, God, You are with us wherever we go. Lord, I pray that that would be our assurance, Lord. That You will 
continue to be with us, Lord, in times of our life, in trials and in storms of our lives, Lord, where we can't but first try to create yet an inner storm in us, thinking that you would never be there for us. We know that you are there for us, Father. As James says, Lord, consider it joy in times of trials because the testing of your faith is going to produce perseverance and build character within all of us. Lord, thank you for calming the storm, showing your power of our nature. Lord, may we be encouraged, Lord, to know that you are sovereign in all that you do and you have a plan in our lives. And may we continue to sail on, God, and live as disciples of Christ, free from fear. We give you all the glory and honor and praise. And in Jesus' name we pray.